What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode one of Blazing the Trail. On this episode, we'll be discussing the legacy of two-time MVP Steve Nash, touching on topics like the inspirations for creating the seven seconds or less signs, what made Nash the perfect quarterback for this offense, the neat trick he invented that's super popular today, and of course, modern day comparisons, along with just a bevy of other topics. Please remember that the article I wrote on Nash is also live as we speak, and you can find the link to that in the description below or just by going on basketballnews.com. Joining us will be his former coach and arguably the most influential offensive thinker in the game today, Coach Mike D'Antoni, his former backcourt running mate and two-time all-league defender, Raja Bell, and my good friend and fellow basketball nerd, Steph Noah. By the way, be sure to follow Steph on Twitter, at Steph No. He's one of the best writers in the game and an absolute must-follow if you fancy yourself a member of the NBA Twitter community. Speaking of which, did you know Raja Bell has been denied verification by Twitter twice? I know, freaking ridiculous, right? Anyway, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for podcast consumption. We have so many more great episodes and interviews with different players and coaches coming up in the next couple weeks, and I, I really don't want you guys to miss out. For instance, next week, we'll be discussing Rashard Lewis, the pioneer of the modern day stretch four. And in the process, we'll be debunking some myths surrounding that Cavs Magic Eastern Conference Finals, particularly how the Magic were guarding LeBron James. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, stay tuned. Now, without further ado, I give you Blazing the Trip. So just to start, before we really dive into Nash, I think it's important that like the people listening to this understand kind of your background a little bit and like what you were doing. A lot of people think about those Suns teams and they think all you guys did was run. You were like this transition team, you know, seven seconds or less right. or whatever. And like you and me both know, like a lot of the beautiful stuff you were doing was in the half court with the spread pick and roll and a lot of the early offense stuff like through the pistol, double drag, whatever. Can you tell me where did you get those ideas from? Because like everybody else was really all their sets were just to get into post ups for their big men. Like what right. made you do that? Well, you know, I was, again, it was a collective thing. I had a good coaching staff. We all, you know, it was the system that we were playing led to making stuff up that isn't being used at that time. And so when we decided to go with Amari at center and, you know, Sean at the four, then we were able to be a lot more creative on things that, that we needed to do, you know, spreading the floor. Um, and Steve was such a unbelievable talent and decision maker. You know, you could become creative. And it wasn't anything that we sit down and, you know, it's almost like, we had the idea, okay, here's what we're doing. And everything just came from that. And 
the biggest thing was getting also the go-ahead or support of management, ownership back with the Suns, that was the Colangelo's, and they supported 100%, so then we could dive into without any, you know, trepidation or hesitation. And, and then when you have great players, and at the end of the day, it's, it's them. And then when uh, when they see this and that, we'd watch them play, and they'd create a lot of, you know, what they thought was playing. Then we'd write it down, call it, and then been able to put it in our playbook. But a lot of stuff was also created by different players. Really? Can you give me like yeah? A, yeah. Can you, I know it's been a little while. Can you give me like an example of like one time? I'm trying where to think. Uh, you know, like uh, we have a play now, which I've been using for the last twenty years, is uh, called Nash. He just started, you know, going down, throwing the ball up, bumping the guy, setting the quick pick and you know stuff like that. And then we go, you know what? That looks good. Maybe we can. And we try to tweak it, or or what do we call. Uh, I mean, there were different plays that we were just, uh, you know, we had a section always in our practice that we just let them freelance. We get in the half court, spread them out. We had spots that people had to kind of be in. And from there, they could do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they felt. And we would just go. It was more of a shooting drill uh, to get up shots. Uh, you know, we'd, we do this drills, be three on zero, then we got it to five on zero, uh, to where you get three shots out of the movement, and we go, you know, okay, you got to make a hundred shot, hundred shots uh, before it's over, and and they would just come up with their own stuff, you know, flipping picks. Uh, like I said, one's called dash, where most people probably call it bump or whatever, but uh, uh, where he would just do that and. Uh, just different guys would just come up with something like, oh, okay. We didn't think of that one. That's a good one. Yeah. And they usually go to their strengths, you know, what they like to do, what they do well. And, you know, it's not me telling them what they do well. They they kind of know what they do well. And so you let them just improvise a little bit, you know, and I don't want to be too contrite and too cool, but it's almost like a jam session. Okay, you know, do what you do. And see what you got. And then we would just sit there and observe it. If we really liked something, we just either named it, wrote it down, and act like we did it. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's just just giving great players uh, a framework that they could just do whatever they want inside the certain concepts that we had. Yeah, when you talk about that, uh, like the them going three on zero, that reminds me of uh, Coach Coach Borrego. I know he used to do that when he was on the Spurs. He would they would start their practices by doing three on zero because like a lot of their sets were three man stuff. Um, I was so I was wondering. Hey, go ahead, Coach. I'm sorry. No, I said most sets are three man stuff. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the pistol stuff, I know you guys ran with like Marion right. Nash and Stoudemire. Um, right. I, I was going to say so, like obviously, you know. Every coach has a little bit of something that impacts them. Is there any coach, whether it be schematically, philosophically, who you kind of like, you learned something from and that kind of carried with you throughout your career? You know, I, I played off was 39 and played 13 years in Europe. Uh, then when I started coaching, and, you know, I played for some great coaches through the years. And I think it's an accumulation. I mean, you know, I can 
came back like uh, the coach that I had in Europe, you know, he mostly, he taught me a lot of the psychological, so how to, you know, get players to be confident uh, and put them in spots that uh, they could succeed. I, you know, I went to Europe as a, a player that really didn't have a lot of confidence. You know, I had fairly much talent, great, but I had good talent, but I underperformed because my confidence level was at zero. And so you picked that from him, how he got players confident and uh, stuck with you no matter what. Um, and then you get, you know, I went to Marshall. And at Marshall, we played, you know, the center was uh, a 6'5 guy and a power forward shot. We didn't have a three back then, but he was out by the three-point line, 6'10", 6'11", shooting that, you know. So we had odd teams, and I just felt like that was the best way to go. And, you know, that high school, we ran a lot. So I learned things about the fast break and what, what you did. I mean, just so many people contributed. And it's just an accumulation of, uh, of so many coaches. And, and, and beforehand, you know, uh, playing, I played for Doug Moe for about a month or two and learning, you know, how fast they went. And, you know, we didn't invent anything. We just kind of, just changed. It was just different than how the NBA was playing right at that right at that time. Yeah, you remember? Uh, have you ever heard of the coach? Uh, this is sidebar, but you reminded me of this uh, John McClendon. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, he was like I don't remember. He was like in the '60s. He was Sam Jones's coach uh, at North Carolina Central or whatever, and he was like they they used to run like we wanted to get a shot up in uh, within the first eight seconds, and that just reminded right. me of what you were just saying. Right. Yeah. yeah, some people have done it. You know, I'm just very fortunate also to have the right people, the right time, the right talent, the right ownership, the right uh, to surprise people. And that's why I really, oh, wow, okay. And, you know, and then they changed the rules of the NBA. They, uh, the three-point line, the players were becoming so much more efficient that you could even exploit that more than back back in the, when it first came in. Mm-hmm. People weren't very good at shooting threes. That's why they didn't shoot. They weren't good at it. But the players keep getting better. And then there's a certain point and a lot of tipping point where, okay, now a three-point is very relevant and be kind of not good if you don't shoot enough up. And who knows how many is too many or too less. I don't know. I mean, people try to put a number. I don't know. Depending on the team you have and the situation you're in and the people you're playing with. and I mean, just so many things goes into coaching. You can't – and everybody, announcers and, you know, no offense, but you guys – journalists they want to pin it down you know put it on paper write it this is you know not and it's fluid and you you know basketball's an art it's not something that you know everybody could be picasso if uh <laughs> you know if you had rules <laughs> there's no rules and you just try to do the best of the talent that you have and it changes all the time yeah no and i'm laughing over here because you're right i love when uh I know Charles Barkley says a lot of stuff just to rile people up, but I love, I love when he says, uh, he's like you, you, you kids on Twitter in your basement who know, think, you know, the game, like, because you could, you know, crunch some numbers and stuff. And he's, he's, he's right to some degree. Oh yeah. No, you know, Charles great. Um, and he is right. And he also, there's a lot of things like everybody, you know, you're right. You're wrong. And, uh, yeah, that applies to that team. Does apply to this other team. You know, it's like, you can't, it's almost like jello. You cannot squeeze it. You know, you can't, you can't get a, 
there's a there's a there's a you know a sixth sense to it, and, and players will evolve and be different, and every team's different, different personalities. There's just so many factors that you start saying, well, we want to do this or we want to do that. You know, like I bristle at the fact, you know, I, you know, obviously if you go by the math, threes and layups and foul shots, right? But that's not realistic. If you got Chris Paul, guess what? You better shoot a lot of mid-range twos or, or Durant or guys that do it. But, you know, other guys, maybe they need to shoot threes and layups. Then there's other guys that need to shoot mid-range. I mean, you know, Brandon Ingram from New Jersey. I mean, he's a mid, mid-range. Why would you take that from him? Mm-hmm. Because he's that efficient. So, you know, it's just it's hard to just say this is the way it needs to be done. There's just so many different ways that you can do it, should do it. And a lot of it just depends on the personnel. Because all you're trying to do is win. You're not trying to define the game of basketball. You're trying to win. And you better do what's efficient for that team. No, I love that coach. Um, now, so you mentioned this perfectly. I think it's like having, having an idea of your personnel and then having a guy who can, who can make the decisions based on that personnel to get you the shots you need to be an efficient offense. So how was Steve Nash, the perfect conductor to what you guys were doing, whether that be with the spread pick and roll or just really anything you were doing? Well, Steve Nash, probably, uh, um, there's a lot of things that stand out about Steve. Um, that people probably, you know, take for granted or can, you know, say something. But Steve was maybe one of the best all-time shooters ever, you know, from threes, from mid-range, and from, from foul shots. Uh, good finisher, maybe not a great finisher because of his, his uh, physique, but a good finisher, creative, and uh, and makes – and the, probably the best of all what I like because those are all, like, talents that – that you hone and get better at, which he was great at working at his craft. But the thing I like about Steve was his decision-making ability and making the right decision. And that, that's kind of, I don't know if that's, you can learn that or that's boring. Yeah, I don't know. I know it's hard to, you get guys a little bit better. You can uh, show them stuff and they, you know, as the years go on, the game kind of slows down a little bit. Uh, Steve was the best I've ever seen at making the right decision at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, and, I really, and I really thought that when he had his MVP, maybe his first or second, I don't remember, maybe both. Uh, he, because he had the ball so many, so much in his hands and making that play. And the reason for that was because he was so good at it. It's like, yeah, let's get the ball out of Steve's hands, give somebody else and, and not be as good. It's <laughs> like, no, because that was our team. That was Steve's ability. If you had five guys that were equal, yeah, you, then different guys got to make different decisions. But uh, uh, Steve was just the best I've ever coached or been around it at making decisions. I was saying those two years he made MVP, I do the whole year, fast breaks, how fast we play, picking rolls, and he read thousands of them. I bet just you know, through, that, through a season, a handful of times he made the wrong decision. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah, and he knew it immediately. And you know, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, Coach, because um, you're making me smile right now. So this is gonna take a quick backstory. So I read, uh, I read Jack McCallum's book on the 2006 Suns season. Right, great book. He did a really good job. And there's this one portion of the book where 
you're saying some stuff. You're like debunking some myths about basketball. And the, the book takes place in 2006. And I'm just smiling because like you're saying stuff, you know, stuff about the game that I didn't figure out until 2020 or and that like people didn't figure out until 2015, 2016. And like, for example, one thing you said was like um, you said something about low turnover teams and you're like, just because a team doesn't turn the ball over a lot doesn't mean they have great ball securities. Like all that tells me is they don't pass a lot. And we're talking about Nash and you're like, Nash holds the ball a lot. And that was again, by design. And he did have high turnover rates, but he also made like defense breaking passes. Like he made a lot of layup passes, a lot of passes to open three point shooters. Tell me how important it is to have a decision maker who not only makes great decisions, but isn't afraid to get burned. Well, that, that's the thing. That's that's where the confidence of trying to know that hey, play, playmakers a very hard position, you know, or anybody making plays. And you know, I say playmaker, but say it loosely because whoever has the ball and making the play at that point is the playmaker. You know, he's he's got to make a play, and it is so hard that if you got to do it over and over and over against you know teams that are scheming you and the best defensive players. Uh, yeah, unbelievable athletes. Um, if you lose your, if you have a split second of, of non-confidence, you can't do it. And then, you know, it's like, so I think the number one step is getting guys uh, confident that, uh, and also knowing that no matter what you do, you're, I've got you. You know, I've already, man, I've already, you know, cast my die with you. We're, we're going down together. If we're going down, we're going down together. And give him every, and if you make the right choices on people, on their heart, as long as they're not selfish and they're trying to make the right play, why would you ever criticize? I mean, it's like when they make a wrong play and you bring them over and you criticize them for it, don't they know they made the wrong play? I mean, what are you telling them? All you're doing is reinforcing your negativity for a guy. They know that, you know, it's, it's like shooting. If you, you know, you take good shots and just miss them. Hey, I keep taking them. I don't care, you know, but, you know, just stuff like that, just little things that people, like I said, people want to define everybody. And, and we, we were talking about Steve's uh, turnovers. Well, okay, he had a lot, but he had the ball all the time. So I don't ever look at an individual's turnovers unless they're, they're high rate and not, and not much usage on the ball. I mean, yeah, that would probably be more equivalent to just saying, oh, the guy had six turnovers. Well, he had the ball 50% of the time. <laughs> That's not bad. I look at team turnovers. You know, if a team is less than 10 or 12 on down, hey, we're good. And if one guy had 11 of them, hey, we're good. You know, because he made all the plays. And, of course, you try to help them and you put them in spots that you can cut their turnovers down. But I would never – I just think it's wrong to – to really you know, underline things they know they got to get better at or do a better job and just to pound in a, a negative point to their head because I think you can, you can you won't get the most out of players, I don't think. Yeah, and I, I think I agree. And I think you agree with me here. Would you say, Coach, you'd rather have a lead playmaker who's willing to get burned, willing to take risks, but will make those defense bending passes over a guy who just makes safe passes and doesn't turn the ball over that much? Yeah, I mean, ideally, you like to have both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, know? of course. You like to have a guy never makes a mistake. Oh, yeah, that's ideal. We'll all work to that. But I'm not going to criticize a guy for going out there. If he's competing and he, his heart's in the right, but you can tell. 
you can look at a player and know if he's selfish or unselfish or competing or not competing. And there's different types of turnovers and there's all kinds of things that uh, if a guy has the right stuff, whatever you want to call it, then you go with him and you, you support him all you can uh, and then live with the results. And sometimes, most of the time it'll work out, sometimes it won't. Yeah. Now, Coach, um, we've talked about, you know, his passing. We've talked about his shooting. I want to I want to touch on that ball handling a little bit. Something that makes Nash um, different than a lot of the all-time great guards, a lot of guards just in history. He was a little guy who could get in the paint, and then he could maintain that dribble in the paint, and he could probe in the paint, and he could, right. you know, lull the defense. How did you guys use that to your advantage offensively? Um. Just making guys aware that just because Steve is driving to the basket didn't mean that he was going to finish right there. That be aware that he can. Because I think he was the first one that started doing that, you know, and uh, just holding on to the ball. The Nashing. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. You know, we named it Nash for one, you know, some like, you know. I remember when, uh, I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to think back just when he came to L.A. and I had Steve for a brief second, you know, but he was hurt all the time and whatever. But, you know, he wasn't doing it as much. And we're going, Steve, you know, we, we named the second here. Just keep the dribble and go around and round and round until you find somebody. He goes, oh, yeah. You know, because sometimes players forget how, what they did in years before. And you kind of fade into a different type of uh, or you forget some of your signature moves and it's funny it's uh but uh he uh we just watched him play and he was able to do that we go man this is great now if the other guys will stay spaced or have timely cuts or or whatever and play off knowing that it's probably what he's going to do because you know steve was not athletic enough to go and dunk it or you know like you have guys today that uh, can finish at such a high rate that most of the time the play is ended at the rim. Uh, but Steve played more, you know, more cat and mouse game. And so we just made guys aware of that. He kept doing it. And just kept getting better. No, it's cool. Like you, you mentioned it. Like when he got in there, if you pause the screen when he gets in the paint, all five eyes are on him. And I don't know if that's like, right. if that's coaching right. technique, you guys teach that, or like it's like everyone's just afraid it's Nash, you know? Well, the good thing, if you pause it there, probably all, all, all eyes are also defensively on him. Yeah, exactly. All five, all yeah. five defenders so are there. Now, just... we, we tell guys, you know, if you, see, if you see the back of your defender's head, go. You know, go right to the back, Steve will get you the ball. If you see space in there that your defender moved to the open space, give Steve an outlet. You know, a lot of the turnovers on guys that are probing or playing or picking rolls are the faults of the outlet passes. They're not in the vision of of, uh, of the playmaker. So, you know, they, they may don't, don't drift to the corner and mm-hmm. they don't uh, go to the space that uh, – you know, they're directly in behind the defense where guy can't pass it to them. So we are really aware of off the ball how you reposition yourself to be able to have a chance to get the pass from the playmaker. And then if you have outlets like that, then play, the turnovers will go down. Yeah. If, you're, if you don't have it, then you're in trouble. Yeah, I remember. That's funny you mentioned it because I know, I know you got you instructed that the 
especially Raja, once the once the sh- the shot was missed, to run all the way to like the back part of the corner, like behind the backboard. And I know Raja was really good at uh, lifting from the corner to the yes. wing after Nash would yeah. drive. And I saw a lot of openings like that. Oh, no, for sure. He was the best at, you know, Boris Dial. Even Mari. Mari was great at finding a way to cut, mm-hmm. getting the ball. You know, Steve and him had that little play where he would dribble around right Mari and he'd come around and dunk the complete hell out of it. Which, you know, Mari, you know, and, and Sean Barry was so fast, so quick that a guy would take his eyes off one second. He was he was up for the lob or, or a back door. Uh, Leonard Barbosa, the same way. I mean, you know, if you, if basketball is played right, uh, and you have great players, I mean, obviously, every coach, nobody's, you know, you can't have great players. You can make good players better, but you can't make them great. Uh, but, uh, uh, we just had guys that were so talented physically that they just, you know, we would spend a lot of time on, you know, the, just a little thing like a guy standing in the corner and he's driving at you. You know, what are the things can you do to get a layup? And, you know, back door, over top. You know, Grand Hill was great about coming out of the corner and face cutting you uh, for for layups and just different things. And that, that came out of that three on zero uh, exercise we do every day, shooting drill every day. And guys got good at reading the situation we'd have coaches stand in there and be the be the dummies which we normally are uh of uh of you know playing up a little high taking the eyes off and, and having the other guys read it and you know i know we've been criticized a lot for it's simple about how we did it is uh, all you do is pick and roll all you do is run all you do is jack up threes it's a little bit more complicated than what people think and not everybody can do it not everybody has that ability but we were lucky in phoenix and different places to have guys with that ability and i just always went with a guy made it to the nba he's got talent and you don't get there just by knowing somebody you get there by you've kicked somebody's butt somewhere (laughs) (laughs) somewhere you were really good and so we got to find that person and uh and bring it out on the floor and that's our assistant coaches are great at doing that and Believing in guys and uh, and just uh, getting them to spots where they can do it. Yeah. So, coach, I want to talk. Okay. So, I, you know, obviously, I was. I'm only 23. So, the, the first time this all happened, oh I was. Oh boy, I got sport coach. Sport, sport coach. Yeah. So the first time this all happened, you know, I wasn't. I watched it, but I didn't. I couldn't register what was happening. So, you know, I've went back this summer, been watching a lot of you guys' games, and I watched. Uh, and not to take you down memory lane too much, but I watched the 2007 Spurs Sun series, and I've heard Nash talk about this a lot. And he and he says you and him both like share this, where you wish you doubled down more. And for a while, I didn't understand what you meant. Then I watched the series. I watch it right. Game one, Duncan plays awesome. You have I think you have Stoudemire on him. I know you put Marion right. on Parker to slow down the dribble penetration, and right. Duncan's awesome. So you put Kurt Thomas in the starting lineup, and you know, you guys win game two, uh, you know, and of course, like the the unfortunate stuff happens with the rules. We're not going to like quibble over that right now. Yeah, but sure, I'm sure. thinking about it. I'm like, man, why didn't you guys just every time down the court get to the 30 foot line and just spam pick and roll and make Duncan come up to the level 
and make him go back, then rescreen and then keep doing that until he was just cooked. Did that, do you ever like think about that? Like, damn, I probably should have just done that and just kept believing in myself and kept doubling down on what we were doing and just told everyone else to, you know, leave me alone. Oh oh yeah. No, when you go back to it, there's a lot of things that, uh, uh, that's the hard thing about the NBA. You know, you, you, you try to figure out why you're short, right. On the, on what happened Mm -hmm. or came up short. And a lot of times it is, you know, it's, um, circumstance you know you're trying to find a reason that that you lose and maybe the reason isn't what you're thinking you know it's it could be well if you were just you know they 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 criticize that we shot too many threes well what if we shot a few more well we don't want nobody knows that but you automatically you got all the criticism you got all the people you know piping up and uh, you do sometimes back off uh, that you should double down on it. You know, I should have made Steve shoot more. He should have shot more threes, you know, because he's one of the best shooters ever. Uh, there's just all kinds of things that uh, that you second guess. So, yeah, you, we second guess that. We second guess everything and try to figure out, you know, um, just how to do it better. Yeah, no, and that's the thing, like, um, I'm sure, you know, you hear because of the way you've coached, whether it be Nash or Harden, you hear a lot about like heliocentrism, helio ball, whatever, and people criticize, oh, you can't, you can't win that way. And like people play the results too much, I feel like. And, you know, just because like the thing didn't happen just because you guys didn't end up coming out on top doesn't mean you guys didn't just show everyone a winning model, like a model that could win championships. It just, you know, it just didn't work out like that. Sometimes the best team doesn't win you know that. Well, yeah, yeah, and you and you don't have the other the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like like Jay they said, you can't win the way James Harden played, right? Oh, we did win. <laughs> we were right there, ready to go to the finals, and Chris Paul pulled a hamstring. So, how do you get to the point where you can't do it? Yeah, we could have, you know. And we're in this again, game seven, and we missed 27 straight threes. <laughs> it's like, okay, if we'd have made five of those, we'd have been in the finals. So what do you mean you can't? You can. Now, maybe it's harder. Maybe you can't play that way with everybody. But, you know, sometimes you have unique talents, and you got to play to that talent. And whether it's classic basketball or whether – whether you want to label it as fun to watch, and maybe it didn't. But our, our, our whole goal is not to, you know, it is to have fun, it is to entertain, it is to have the players have fun. But it's also to win. And you got to maximize what you got, exploit it, and then hope you hope that's good enough. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, one shot going in and out, one referee blows the whistle, uh, uh, somebody getting hot at the right time. Uh, there's so many factors. Yeah. All, all you try to do is play the best way that this team, particularly this team in this time, plays. And when it was the most efficient, try to do the best you can do. Yeah. So I just wanted to just ask one more question before we finish uh-huh. off. Sure. Um, so, you know, of course, there's there's never going to be another Steve Nash. It's just somebody with that background and like the revolutionary right, situation yeah. you guys were all in. Right. That'll never happen. Right. right. But – in today's NBA, 
Is there any player, players that remind you of Nash in the way that he was able to get in the paint as a little guy, maintain that dribble, and manipulate the defense from there? Is there anyone who reminds you of him? Uh, it's, that's hard. Uh, you know, and, and again, man, I'm from the thinking that every generation of players, and now this team's getting older, we're getting to another generation of players, they're all better. You know, I know it's weird. But doesn't mean that he wouldn't be as good there because of the training and, and the way things are. Um, I just think players keep evolving to even get better. And now I don't know if there's the decision-making that he had to have to coach somebody, look at it. I was just so fortunate to be able to be with Steve for four years that, that you come to understand that that's something that is rare. And whether guys have that or not, I'd have to watch I'd have to be, a, you know, one game you can see it. One game doesn't mean it. Can you do it over and over and over, you know, for 82 games? And Steve did that. That's why he's so unique. And so I would say no, but that doesn't mean that the point guards today are not, aren't, aren't better. That makes sense? No, 100% sense. And I, I really yeah. appreciate you being like, you know, of no offense, you are a little older than me. <laughs> like you said, like just you said, hair, just like you said, you have sport coats older than me. Uh, yeah. But I appreciate you not being like you know a lot of old guys are a little bit more bitter towards this generation. So it's pretty cool to see like a. Nah, are you kidding me? That gives me hope for I was we messed it up. Hope you all fix it up <laughs> because because we did a great job on it. Because <laughs> it's messed up right now. Yeah. I, oh, I agree. Trust me. I I spend way too God, much time just, thinking about it. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it's so. I mean, I know there's some difficult things, but we don't even solve the simple things, or get, or at least try to get the difficult things at fifty percent or better. You know, you'll never maybe solve it totally. I don't know; it's just it's too diverse. But I, man, you can get better at it, can't you? You know, instead of having thirty mass shootings every weekend, can we get it down to ten? You know, can we get it? Can we get it under control a little bit? It's mm-hmm. like crazy. Drives me crazy. No, I wholeheartedly agree, Coach. And it's like I said, it's really cool hearing you have that fresh perspective. Appreciate it. I'm going to let you go now, Coach. I just want to say, like, this was like a really one of the most insightful conversations I've ever had in my life. You know, I'm a young guy, oh, aspiring. That's awful nice, son. That's awful nice, man. Yeah. Hey, tell, tell Raja I said hi. I will. I'll for sure do that. I'm sure he'll be happy hi. to hear that. Matt, what's up, dog? What's up, Raja? How you doing, man? I'm all right, bro. How are you, man? Good, good. Um, really quick, I just got to say this before I forget. Uh, Coach D'Antoni said, what's up? I just got off the phone with him about 20 uh-huh. minutes ago. That's what's up, man. That's yeah. what's good. All right. So let's get started really quickly. Um, first, I just want to explain myself. So I have a Clippers shirt on. Uh, me and you kind of talked about this on the phone, but I'm only wearing this Clippers shirt because as I was rewatching your guys' team from the mid-2000s, I did watch that Clippers series in 06, and that, that play where it's like... Um, for those who didn't know, it's, you know, game five, you guys are down three. I think D'Antoni runs like a sideline out of bounds play. It's supposed to be you fake your, like you're going to fake pin down for Marion and then you veer into the corner. And I don't know what coach Dunleavy was thinking. I think he brought in somebody who hadn't played all game to guard you. Right. Yeah. yeah, Daniel Ewing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, yeah. it works perfectly. You knock down that three and you know, the rest is history, but that's why I'm wearing the shirt. Nah, that's all good, man. I don't, I don't hold any, like I harbor any ill will towards yeah. anybody, bro. I'm a fan too, but I, you know, the funny thing about that play was we ran, I mean, some of that stuff runs together now, but we ran, we had run 
it was the second try at that play. I think we had mm-hmm. run a play. It didn't work. And so we came back and ran that because they kind of defended the first one pretty well. Yeah. Now, so I was going to say, let's start real quick, get some context here. Can you, so everyone thinks about that team and they're like, all you guys did was run transition. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. You guys had this like beautiful half court offense that really centered around the spread pick and roll. Can you explain really quickly how that spread pick and roll works? And can you honestly give me like your role within that? Yeah, man. Um, so like a lot of what we did was predicated on pace. Um, but you know, you can't play an entire game up and down like that. So we had Mike's system was, I, I guess, you know, there was one pop and there was four pop and there were a lot of things within that. And the, the culmination of a lot of our things, if you couldn't find a basket prior to that would be, you know, a pick and roll. And, and, you know, there would be times where you'd have someone down in that dunker spot, which would be that opposite kind of short corner area. And usually both corners would be filled. A high wing would be filled. And if that high wing wasn't, be, wasn't filled, obviously they'd be down in the dunker spot. But I think Mike more than, more than most at that time had the big lifted so that there was nothing but space down there. And, um, you know, Steve's ability to apply pressure um, in the pocket with the threat of our role you really were forced as a defender to make a tough call, right? Were you going to take away the rim threat? Um, and usually that had to happen from the backside. Um, and if you did that, we that, that was when I came into play, right? Or James Jones or Eddie House, the, our roles on those teams were to snipe. So if you helped off of us, we'd lift up out of that corner and and we were, we were greenlit to shoot it as many times as we needed to. So, you know, it was really hard to guard us at the time. Um, switching wasn't as in vogue. So... It wasn't like when you came off, there was just another defender in front of Steve. He usually had two with him. And then it applied a lot of pressure on the other three defenders on the court. Yeah, no. So um, one thing I want to mention, you mentioned you having to. So I know D'Antoni would have like you and whoever the other shooter was. You guys would have to go to like the very back corner, like behind the backboard, right? Listen, to have as much space. When I got to Phoenix, um, I had played for Jerry Sloan. I mean, you're talking about polar opposite styles, <laughs> yeah. right? But I was pretty familiar with what the corner was. So, you know, when Mike would instruct me to go to the corner, I would run to what the corner had always been for me, which was somewhere near the corner of the, of the, of the court. Mike wanted you almost heels on the line and side of your shoe on the baseline corner. You couldn't be deep enough in the court. Mm -hmm. And then you, you were so good at lifting from the corner to the wing when Nash would, you know, get downhill and so I want to talk about that. You already mentioned kind of, you alluded to like Nash's prowess within the system and what he meant to it. But can you explain like why, like how uniquely, uniquely suited Nash was for this system? Like what was unique about him that made him thrive in that? Uh, well, first, I mean, it's his, his ability to shoot the ball um, mm-hmm. and be a scoring threat in a day and an age where it was pass first for PGs. Um, but Steve was probably our best shooter. No, probably is about it. He was our best shooter. He just set the table so much. So because he was, because he was such a great shooter, you know, you couldn't really go under on Steve, right? So once you were forced to go over on Steve, then that put your big in a, in a, in a defending type of spot where he had to do something about Steve and at least had to hold until that guard could get back to Steve. And so, um, Steve also had an array of finishes once he got into the paint. Mm-hmm. Like he was great with his floaters, his runners, his off balance stuff. So, you know, and he had real genuine patience once he was in the pocket. So now you've got a big kind of on him 
the guard is scrambling to get over and get back, but he's continuing to kind of press you in the pocket. And at any given time, he'll raise up or shoot. So the big is really on the hook to keep dealing with Steve. Um, and then I think, you know, so we're talking about shooting ability. We're talking about patience in the pocket as, as traits for Steve. And then just an uncanny ability, not just to know where you were and hit you, but hit you right where you needed to be hit to, to, to be able to execute in the amount of time that you had. Right. So there's only a split second to get that shot off. If it gets kicked back out to you on the weak side or the strong side, I'm sorry, with that, with that backside pass, because we're in the pros, the guy's six, seven, he's closing back out to you. So if you hit me by my feet or you hit me kind of up over my left shoulder where I got to bring it back down to get, I mean, anything could go wrong there, but Steve just had an ability to know where everyone was and put it right on your hands. Yeah. And so the reason, well, one of the reasons I sought you, obviously one of them is because you're Raja Bell, you're, you're a prolific part of this incredible offense and just the, the team. But like one of the reasons I brought you on is because you're like, and you're in your heyday, you were an all league defender and you were an all league, like point of attack defender. So you can, you can really relate to the, the trials and tribulations that come with guarding a guy like Nash. So let me, let me paint this picture for you. Right. So Nash coming up the court, say hypothetically, you're guarding him, right? We're in an alternate universe. You're still with Jerry Sloan or whatever. And, you know, you set a screen, you guys would always set them from the bottom side to make the defender go over. Mm -hmm. And you, like you said, you don't want to go under because he's going to burn you. And at the time it wasn't as prominent, but say the, the, the big was drop. He was in drop, right? That's midi pull up. Right. And then say he's at the level Nash has, you know, guile, he can play the angles. He can get around that. That's no problem. And then say, like you said, switching wasn't as prominent, but I do remember in my film study, I watched, and this is going to sound so obscure, so random. I was watching a random 2007 game against the Cavs. Mm -hmm. And Mike Brown was insistent on switching every single time. And I think he was trying to take away Stoudemire's role because they would switch immediately. And they'd have like Zydrunas Elgowski switched on to Nash. And Nash is like, okay, this is cute. He had backpedal. And then he has that hezzy dribble. I'm sure you remember it well. He has that hezzy dribble. He, he, you get him and then he'd be gone. So like, what do you, like none of these coverages work. What do you do as a defender against this guy? Well, I mean, that was, I, I played Steve. Let me see. This was Oh two. I was with the Sixers. We were going mm -hmm. into Dallas and I looked at Steve, probably like a lot of young players looked at Steve. Oh shit. I, this is Kate, man. He's about six, two. Um, he doesn't look lightning quick. Uh, I'll be fine. Like, and he just destroyed me. So I guess the long answer to your short question is I didn't have much success gardening, so I don't really know what I would have done. But I think, um, you know, and you could switch Steve in today's NBA better than you could then because they're not a hell of a lot of Zadrunas of Gauss's running around. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that that type of center. Um, they were there because of Shaq. They were there, right. And, and, and. They're still there to some degree. They're just not on the court all the time. Like it's matchup based, right? So like if you had more of a, 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 a Draymond type of switch on Steve, Steve's still going to do what, what he does, but it's a, it's a lot more, you know, realistic to be switching those kind of guys on Steve and hope for some success. But Steve, I would treat Steve like I treat a lot of these great creating like offense centric point guards, like guys where, like like Draymond said, like you're in Steph's orbit if you're on Golden State. I would just get the ball out of his hands. And I know that's crazy, right? Like, because you had Amari, you had mm -hmm. Sean Marion, but I think the only thing I could really think to do with Steve is, is just kind of hit him at the point of attack, um, make uh, form that kind of L and force him up court and stay with him until he gets rid of it. 
And then I would deny him the ball back. Like, that's what I would do. And I would, you know, I wasn't a great playmaker for myself. I mean, I just, you know, I, I disagree. I disagree. Well, well, I appreciate that. But I mean, that wasn't my bread and butter. I felt way more comfortable catching and shooting. And, and we didn't run a ton of like floppy action, like the Pacers ran for Reggie or like, you know, uh, uh, Rip got run for him in Detroit. So that puts me in a place, if you get it out of Steve's hand and it gets swung to me, where I have to create. And I just think the law averages support me having mm-hmm. to create. Like, of course. You know what I mean? More than yeah, Steve. So no. that's what I do. But I had it in my notes. I have it in my notes. It was, uh, you were actually, like to me, I think you were a pretty good, like secondary, tertiary creator. Like I saw you run some pick and rolls. I know they'd have you do some stuff in like the two series and stuff. You were creating sometimes. You got to give yourself some so, credit. You know what's funny, man? Like you, it, it's, I appreciate it. Um, mm-hmm. In Utah, you, you know, every, it's really an interesting conversation when I talk about Phoenix because it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. It also, it also kind of, for, for me at, on my arc as, as an offensive player in the NBA, it kind of, it put me in a role, right? I became typecasted at that point because yeah. so much of what we did was Steve centric and you, you, you just kind of lost whatever little ability you had, like you weren't going to get enough reps at it. So you became a shooter, you know what I mean? Like, so there was a little bit of that, but I was never going to be good enough at it. But when you got to Phoenix, you knew like, here's what we're doing, man. You're going to, you're going to spot shoot. You might get some opportunities here and there. Um, but, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because that was right where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be a 3 and D type of guy. Yeah, but I do agree with you on trying to get the ball out of his hands. I remember when you guys played the Mavs in 06, it was you got hurt and Stoudemire was obviously hurt. And like they just like after game one, they just trapped Nash pretty much every play and just like, OK, one of you other guys has to beat us. And you guys at that point were too tired, too depleted. It was kind of it was unfortunate. But uh, so another thing I wanted to ask you and you mentioned how this is like this was such a good moment in your life, but like. Before, like when it first happened, when it first started, you know, you've been co- you've been playing for teams for years. I'm sure a lot of them were coached very similarly. And I feel like this was such a deviation from everything you'd learned prior. Like, were you a little like trepidatious to like buy into D'Antoni's system? Yeah. So Steve and I had played in Dallas mm-hmm. and I knew that last year in Utah that I wanted to be. I was I was watching Phoenix, the success they were having, the style they were playing. So it wasn't hard for me to buy in because... You know, I had constant dialogue with Steve and I knew that that that, that was going to be a good fit for me. Right. Like I could run up in it. Now, I had only shot. I think I shot more threes in my first year in Phoenix. I did in my entire career. Um, so what was difficult for me and it wasn't difficult, but it was new, was just taking the reins all the way off. And that's what D'Antoni essentially did for players. And that's why most people have so much success with him offensively. There are no bad shots in terms of shots that, that you normally make and you shooting them every time you toe that line and you're open, he wants you to let it go. And other coaches would kind of, you know, you miss one, get you out of there or you know, talk to you about, you know, driving the ball. Mike never did that. Like, so you were completely empowered. And I, I remember sitting at, I remember sitting at like my signing dinner with him and Colangelo and, and Dave Griffin and him alluding to how many vacant shots there were because Q and, and um, Joe Johnson were gone. And it was this huge number. And he was like, I'm going to need you to get up this many threes. And I was like, man, you're fucking crazy, man. There's no way. But we got, I mean, I got him up. So, you know, that's what it, it did it. There were, so the other things that were foreign for me were, you know, Jerry Sloan, you, you fouled, you put people in the free throw line. You know, I, I might get shit for this. I don't know why. Like we didn't want to foul. Now, if, 
if we had to foul and it was a good foul, that's one thing. But if you're just going to foul for foul sake, let them make it. We'll go down. We're going to, we want to keep the pace and that's going to wear on you over the course of the game. Things like that were hard for me to adjust to because it was counter everything I had been taught, but uh, buying in and running, I don't think that was an issue, man. That was, that was easy. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I've heard like people say like, um, how did you keep up with Nash and stuff? Like if you wanted the ball, you were going to have to, you're going to have to chase after him. You got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so now with the Nash thing, like, okay, we mentioned buying into the system, but how about this? Like it's, it's you, not all at once, but you, Johnson, Barbosa, Diaw, Stoudemire, Marion, all these great offensive players who are like, you know, second or third best offensive player, Marion, you know, and Stoudemire are probably the best offensive player on another team. Right. How do you buy into like this, this guy with, you know, the long hair all over his head? Just how do you buy into him? Like, what about his personality made it easy to buy into this like heliocentric model? Yeah. Um, Steve was one of the unique superstars I played with that didn't make it about Steve. I mean, it was clearly about Steve, right? Like we can agree it was about Steve, but Steve didn't make you feel like it was about Steve. So he had this ability to, to just relate to everyone and genuinely like within, you know, your conversations and your, and your, you know, just your day to day with him, be interested in what you had going on. Like not just on the court, but like your family. And so Stephen and 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 his wife at the time would have my wife and I over to spend Christmas with him and his two young daughters because we didn't have kids yet. And you know, he just brought you into his world in a way that that you you got immediate buy-in because you knew the human and you knew that deep down Steve cared as much about getting you yours as he cared about getting his. And so that's easy. Like when a star is about getting his and and you know the mission is to help him get his, it's a little more, you know, trepidation about buying into that sometimes. But when you know he's about getting you yours and he's going to get his because of that, I think I think everyone buys in a little easier. Yeah, no, that that's really cool. I, I read like a little tidbit in uh, in the Seven Seconds or Less book about how they caught Nash with like uh, reading the Communist Manifesto. And I just thought it was funny because he's like <laughs> the ultimate egalitarian player. And yeah. it's like, of course he's reading about that. So I was going to say, um, I'm a huge like workout guy in my free time. You know, I was never, never a good enough basketball player to, to ever face you in a, in a matchup. So I, I got, I stuck to working out and, um, I'm curious about like kind of the regimen. Cause I'm sure you, you worked out with him plenty during that time. What kind of like workout <laughs> regimen did he have to achieve that kind of like footwork, you know, balance body control? No, he was a, he was a workaholic man. And then, you know, we put in our work when you got to the arena and, you know, you, you got to lift either before practice or after practice, you're, you're on the court shooting you know, hundreds and thousands of chase. Like all of that is work. But when the lights went out, you know, very often Steve was back at the arena with an individual guy, you know, Steve had back problems early in his career. Mm-hmm. And so this was kind of on the cutting edge and the realization from, from trainers and that it wasn't about your bench and your squat and all of that. This was about, your core and your stability and your balance. And so he spent hours in the dark a day working with, um, with his guy from Canada and, and, you know, just making sure that his body was at its, at its best in, and, and most functioning so that he could do what he did. And I would call Steve, like we'd have an off day, This maybe says something about me. Maybe it says something about Steve, but we'd have an off day being in LA, right? And, yeah. you know, you had LA, you had the night off in LA. So, you know, who knows, man, you got into something. And then 
you know, the next day you don't have much going on. Maybe you have it off. So, mm-hmm. you know, you slept till 1230. I mean, I don't know. We're going to get something to eat and get it, get it popping again. Or I call Steve. You know, we're not going to the gym. This dude would be like running in the stairwell. We're doing like, you know, up downs in his room and push-ups. He just, it's just what he did. He just worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, didn't he, that guy from Canada, were you talking about his like brother's soccer coach or soccer trainer? He'd have work on him or something. Rick. Yeah. I don't know where they met. But it's Rick yeah. Celebrini maybe or okay. something like that. Um, I think that is it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't know the origins of their relationship, mm-hmm. but he was around a lot. Um, and, you know, I creep in there cause I, I like to work too. When people weren't around, I, they'd be in there, man. Yeah, no, I, I always, um, I'm always like interested in, in like training regimens for athletes and stuff. Cause I know it's a lot different than like a, a bodybuilder or a weight trainer or whatever. Cause you know, you're not trying to, you're not trying to hulk, hulk around and stuff except for unless you're like Carl Malone, which I still don't know how this is like completely aside, but like, I don't know how Carl Malone was that big in that fast at the same time. <laughs> it's a freak. Yeah, no, yeah, he was freak. one last thing real quick. You kind of mentioned like these younger creators and I know there'll, there'll never be another Nash, you know, it'll never work out where somebody has that background and you get that circumstance with like this coach and this revolutionary scheme and all these shooters, but who in today's game, you know, you cover the game now, who in today's game reminds you of Nash in the way they're able to little guy get in the paint, maintain that dribble and just manipulate the defense from there. Man, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, Steph Curry reminds me a lot of Nash. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, very, very, very different than Nash because his ability to score and shoot is is embraced and they've built an offense around that part of his game, not necessarily his distributing. But he's a remarkable distributor. And I think the other things that stick out like are, are that they're not super blessed with, with this just – I don't mean to – like North to South athletes. Yeah, I mean, they're great athletes. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but they're not like put your elbow on the rim type of athletes and they're not running four twos or four threes. Like these are, these are athletes that, that people could see themselves in. You know what I mean? Like they're not six, seven and stuff. So, but they both have this really great hand eye coordination, um, really good pace, great handle. Like they have it on a string, even if it doesn't look like, you know, the and one mixtape all the time, right? I think they use it efficiently and effectively, uh, but they both have a great ability to be, you know, in the pocket, under control, have this great vision. Um, so they, they're from, they're, they're, they're very similar. I, I'm sure there are other ones, man, but you asked a really good question. Can mm-hmm. I kind of stump me there? I'm sure. Have you listened to the Flying Coaches podcast you guys have on the ringer mm-hmm. with uh, Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll? No, should I? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you should. So there's this episode, <laughs> there's an episode where Pete Car- uh, Steve, Kerr, uh, Steve Kerr's talking about how like, when they scout players, they're looking for like multi-sport athletes. And that's why when you said Steph, I kind of smiled because I'm like, yeah, Steph and Steve, both like guys who played a lot of sports growing up as kids, both like great hand-eye coordination. So I think that's a, that's a great comp. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, oh, so I asked, I said that was my last question, but I just remembered I have like a really good question for Are you, you, good, man? you good. personally. So yeah. I've, I've listened to you in your interview with Duncan and you were giving Duncan flack because he, you know, you said he ruined your title your NBA title and stuff. But like, so when I listen to Steve and uh, coach, coach D'Antoni talk, they always talk about not doubling down enough on what you guys were doing. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. You had Steve on the pod? No, I didn't. 
No, no, Steve. Uh, oh. I just listened to Steve say. That. I was gonna give you. I was gonna give him a lot of shit because he didn't come on my podcast yet. Oh no, he he <laughs> he uh his um he he didn't deny me. His PR person respectfully denied denied me for. But um he so they t- Steve and uh, Coach Dantoni talk about doubling down, right? And so I didn't know what they meant at first, and then I wa- I rewatched that 2007 Spurs Sun series, and so game one. I'm sure you remember Duncan goes off. I think Stoudemire was on him. Marion guarded Parker to like stop his dribble penetration and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Game two, you guys start Kurt Thomas. And that like signifies you guys are trying to bang with these guys. And I know you win game two, but I'm thinking like, dude, what if they just played small? And every time you get to the 30 foot mark, Nash is like, okay, we're going to run pick and roll. We're going to bring Duncan up to the level. Kind of like with what Steph was just doing to Robert Williams. We're going to do this over and over and over again. And I want to see if Duncan can stay on the court the whole time. And if, cause they would play two big men, they would have two seven footers mm-hmm. out there. Imagine just keep doing that. Keep grilling them. Do you, do you agree? You wish you guys would have doubled down in hindsight? In hindsight. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and to, to some degree, you could see that um, manifest itself in the way Mike coached with Houston. Mm-hmm. where he essentially said, fuck everything else. This is what we're going to do. Like when we get a situation like that, we're putting you in high pick and roll and we won't run anything else. And I think at the time, Mike was so kind of ahead of, of most of the NBA. And there probably was some pressure, even within his own camp, maybe not from his coaches, but maybe from, you know, I don't know who I'm just spitballing here mm-hmm. to to do things that, that he might not have in his gut wanted to do and given this time that's passed wouldn't do now. Right. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Like the way we, the way we beat them was not going to be to match up to their better bigs. It was going to be to make them have to match down to in theory, our, our better smalls. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. And yeah, just a, I just want to say, man, it was an awesome run, awesome team, awesome player right here. I know we spent the whole time talking about Nash, but I mean, no, you in your own right, man, like two time all league defender, you know, just incredible player, incredible, like just inspiration for a guy who wasn't like heavily touted. Um, the second best player to ever come from the Virgin Islands, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. Maybe <laughs> third now, Aaliyah Boston's for the Virgin Islands. So oh, okay. You're, you're right. You're right. Okay. <laughs> but um, no, I really appreciate you, Raja. Um, just awesome. I, I love listening to the pod. You and Logan are, are freaking incredible. You have like one of the best podcast voices um, in sports. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. No, nah, bro. So, I appreciate it though. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you so much, man. Hey, no doubt. And if you talk to anybody else on those Suns teams, man, make sure you tell them I said, what's up. Um, I will. I'll be. Yeah. yeah. I think the first thing I want to talk about you, you were probably my age when Nashwood is like, was at his peak. So you remember better than I do being that I was young, a lot younger, I was like a child, but how different now is the dialogue about like where we view Nash today, as opposed to at that time? Cause I feel like at that time people were like in outrage that this guy was winning MVPs. I think it's the opposite actually. Like he was just so revolutionary. Nobody had ever seen a player in that style or an offense in that style before. So I think people were really excited. I, I would say, actually, I think it was like kind of divisive because I was one of those people that was really excited to see a uh, different strategy and how it performed. But there were those people, you know, like Charles Barkley famously said that jump shooting teams could never win a championship. And obviously that's been proven <laughs> extremely incorrect. So um, yeah, I guess you might be right that it certainly was divisive. I think uh, going to present day, 
people are way more dismissive of Nash's MVPs because they're a little bit more used to that style of basketball. And, um, you know, there were some players who were all-time greats that missed out on, on some of those MVP awards like Shaq, you know, and other, other players like that, that, you know, you could, you could make a pretty compelling case that maybe uh, he wasn't the number one player uh, in those years. I mean, certainly he was definitely like top five, I would say. Um, but when you look at just like some of those physically dominating players back then, um, you know, Nash was never the most imposing guy. So I could see, why he might get some pushback like present day. Yeah. So like, here's like, I guess um, what I'm thinking is like, maybe it's just cause like the circle, like of basketball people I hang around, I'm sure it's the same with you. Like we don't really like the circles we're in now, we don't really get caught in like the mainstream dialogue as often. So like, sure. I feel like everyone <laughs> we're in the hipster, hipster yeah, basketball circles. Yeah. We're, we're the cool people. So I feel like at least like everyone I know appreciates like Nash, like, like he's like held in reverence. Now he's like, you know, the Elvis Presley of like basketball analytics, like that, the nerd stuff. I I don't know. That's just my thinking, but maybe that is a good point. Maybe people do like, cause I know Kobe's, you know, of course with all that stuff, he's like held in reverence. So anybody taking an MVP away from him when he might've been eligible for one and then Shaq, you know, only winning one people are, kind of confused about that when he was probably the best player in the world more than one year. But another interesting thing about that Suns team, uh, I think it's a huge misconception is, you know, with the seven seconds or less, even if you ask like the players, of the team, the coaches all tell you, it wasn't really like that. They weren't like a transition team. They, they had a good pace for the time, but their beauty, their bread and butter was in the half court with that spread pick and roll offense that, you know, we see so much today. Can you just, um, you know, for people listening, can you explain like in like layman's terms, how like the spread pick and roll works, what makes it beneficial and why Nash was so good at conducting in it? Yeah. I mean, I think they tie in together, like transition and spread pick and roll, like a big thing that D'Antoni brought to the NBA was to have both the wing players to sprint to the corners. Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously that creates really easy offense when those guys, uh, their defenders aren't following them. You get layups, but even beyond that, it just creates that spacing that opens up the middle of the floor for really good point guards, which I think was essential to uh, that Phoenix system and subsequent D'Antoni systems when he didn't have that engine, uh, like with the Lakers, with the Knicks, uh, Jeremy Lin was really good uh, when he got that opportunity. But before Lin, um, you saw that, you know, D'Antoni just didn't have that same kind of magic and the impact on today's game. I mean, it just can't be overstated. I think that, you know, they have this top 15 coaches list. D'Antoni not being on there is just totally insane because every single team plays uh, using those tenets that D'Antoni had in that seven seconds or less Suns team. I talked about these wings sprinting out to the corners. I mean, this pistol action, you see it in every level of basketball, that's like part of that style where, um, yeah, they're, they're getting handoffs off, off those players stationed, um, in the slaughter in the corners. So yeah, his, his impact on the game. I mean, every single team has stolen chunks of that offense. Um, so it just, yeah, it just can't be overstated how important Nash was to that, to, showing that that style could work and D'Antoni too and, and completely revolutionizing the game. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't like, I don't like, and I know you, you know, from some of the stuff I, I read you right, you're also not a fan of like taking away like the accolades from like people who ended up getting them. It's not their fault that, you know, the people in power chose them. But like the top 15 coaches list, I looked at a couple of those names and I'm like, that's, that's not right. Tony. I mean, I'll, I'll, a, I'll come out and say it. I mean, Doc should not. Have yeah. Been yeah. Like, yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking about. The impact that D'Antoni has is just so, so much bigger than Doc. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, I, mean, I don't know. It's comparing Michael Jordan to John Stockton or something. I mean, Stockton was a good player, but you're talking about a guy that changed the way every single team at like every level of basketball plays. Yes. Um, I was going to say Stockton's like, he is kind of, now that you think about it, he's like the coach for his like player career is like the coach version career of Rivers. Cause he's just like a guy who's like his whole, his whole gig is like longevity. He's just been around for a yeah. while. And Rivers, he has a ton it. of records mm-hmm. because he has just coached a ton of different teams. And I think, I mean, this isn't, you're not here to ask me about Doc Rivers, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of his contributions were a product of his assistant coaches. I mean, Tom Thibodeau is the one that, revolutionized defense in the same way that D'Antoni at the same time too, that D'Antoni was revolutionizing offense. And once uh, Tibbs left, I mean, a lot of Doc's success just kind of went by the wayside. His team started catching up on those defensive philosophies too. No, I mean, I am here to talk about Doc Rivers. Of course I am. <laughs> Tibbs, but Tibbs does get, uh, he gets his shine later on in the series. You'll see when I talk about Battier, cause he actually had, this is, I know we're getting off topic now, but he, uh, he actually coached Battier for a year. He was uh, Rick Adelman's assistant. And I know, it, I know they say that, um, that Tibbs invented it while he was under rivers, the, the ice, the ice coverage, the weak uh-huh. coverage, whatever he, um, I, I noticed that Battier was using like something similar to that when Thib- Thibs was coaching him on the Rockets that 07, 08 year. So just something to like bookmark. Sure. But, um, you mentioned the opening up the middle of the floor and that's like really what we're trying to get at with Nash here because Nash, of course, you know, credible shooter, all-time shooter, all-time passer. But I think a lot of people forget that he was so comfortable getting two feet in the paint and, you know, getting that dribble in the paint. And like, just to kind of compare him to today's game, I've been watching a lot of Zach Levine the last couple of days. I know you're going to be able to relate to this being huge Bulls fan, you know, covered the Bulls for years. I watched a lot of Zach Levine the last couple of days. And I think Zach Levine can be one of the best number two options in basketball. But I think if he was your number one option, your offense would not be, if he was your number one, like creator guy, your offense would not be that good because when he's in the paint, he's looking to score. He's not looking to get like a lay down pass or a lob pass or a skip pass. And I think those are like the, the high, high leverage, high, high point, like the best kind of assists. You know what I mean? I feel like the low hanging fruit assists are like, pocket passes, kickouts, whereas Nash is like, again, he's hitting those high point assists, but um, do you, you want to piggyback off of that? That analogy is pretty interesting because yeah, they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I think the biggest thing in basketball is you just have to find a way to create an advantage. And from that, you know, you can set up teammates once you draw two. So players can do that in different ways. I think the way that guys like Levine do it is just sheer athleticism but Levine, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, he, I think he goes into a lot of plays with predetermined reads. So what made Nash so, so special is that he did not make those predetermined reads. He let the game come to him. I mean, you wanted me to go into Nash dribbles later on, mm-hmm. but that's just such a huge component of um, how he was able to create an advantage because he wasn't the most athletic guy. 
certainly. Um, but he was really shifty. He kept plays alive for as long as possible. I think that's a huge um, similarity between him and Steph Curry, where you're guarding these guys and it takes a lot of energy. And you think that the possession is over because with 99% of the other guys that you're guarding, like once the play reaches a certain point, your job is done and you can finally relax after exerting so much energy. But with Curry, he does it by relocating for threes after he gives up the ball. With Nash, he does it by just like keeping the ball, his dribble alive forever. I mean, he's going to dribble, dribble, dribble until you just for half a millisecond lose your concentration or a big man freaks out and comes over when they're not supposed to. And he will find the tiniest windows um, for really high percentage layups. And that's essentially that that was a secret sauce that made Nash so great. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Steph Curry and Steve Nash because when I asked Raja who he thought was the most like Nash esque um, today, he actually immediately said Steph Curry. Not for that exact reasoning, but like he said that. So it's it's funny you mentioned that. But um, yeah, back to we're gonna get to that the Nashing thing right now. But so when I talked to like before I even started doing research for the series, I talked to Mike Prada, and he he just like he just clarified for me. He's like, hey Matt, like I want you to know like like guards have always dribbled in the paint. And like a good example of a guy who got in the paint a lot as a guard, Isaiah Thomas, Steve Nash even said he he modeled his game after him quite a bit. But I think the difference, like you said, is when guards would get in the paint, like, you know, pre-Nash in that era of Thomas and whatnot, that you could like as a defense, you were like pretty certain that the result of the play was coming soon, whether that's, you know, they're going to shoot, are they going to pass, they're going to turn the ball over, they're going to get fouled. And like we're going to talk about with this gnashing thing with Nash, it's like, you know, they, they teach defenders man ball, man ball. So you have to keep looking at the ball. You keep looking at your man and the longer Nash has your gaze while he's in the paint, that would open up opportunities to, for other guys to cut and get open and, you know, find cracks in the defense. But yeah, can you please, you alluded to the gnashing thing. Can you, you're so good at like explaining like the more like concept, like, um, not confusing, but like the more complex basketball jargon into like layman's terms. So can you just explain like your easiest definition of gnashing? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, guys like Levine, you know, they're dribbling once they get to the block or a couple feet away from the restricted area, basically they're putting up a layup, uh, with Nash, he popular. I don't know if he invented it. I mean, maybe he did, but he definitely popular popularized it where, he would keep his dribble alive past the basket. He would go along the baseline and circle around the lane. And by extending his dribble like that, um, like I was saying before, it would extend the time where teammates could get open. It would let defenses um, give defenses the opportunity to make a mistake and let their guard down. And um, you've seen that pretty much every small point guard now that isn't a freak athlete has found how effective that technique is and uh, incorporated it into their own game. Again, across all levels, I mean, NBA, high school, college, Europe, all of them. So it's been just a huge, huge impact across the game. Yeah. And you, you kind of stole my next talking point there. Who do you think in today's game um, has like uses gnashing the most and, you know, has been able to use it to their advantage the most? I mean, all of them, like every guard that 
like I said, isn't a freak athlete. Like John Morant, he doesn't need to Nash to create an advantage, right? It's all about how to draw two defenders. That's the entire uh, uh, center of all basketball offenses, essentially. Um, So yeah, just guards that use a lot of craft, I would say like LaMelo Ball, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Goran Dragic, Jalen Brunson, Tyler Hero, Mike Conley, all these guys who know how to use change of pace and have pretty high feel. Those are the guys that really benefit the most from gnashing, where you allow them to control the ball um, for as long as possible because you know they're going to make the best decision out there and they're going to just find a way to um, get defenses off balance. And the second that they do that, they're going to create an awesome shot for their team's offense. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, I pretty much agree with you there. I think that, I think Nash I forgot is to mention biggest... Trey too. Trey. Oh, oh yeah. He's great at that too. Yeah. He's probably like the most on the record for um, like just saying like how much Nash has had an impact on his career. Like he's like pretty open. I know he said on the JJ pod that he, he literally like took his like little hesitation dribble move he would use when he was about to get like a, a ball screen or something. That's interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard that, but um, you know, the signature move that Nash gets so much credit for is this gnashing thing where he just dribbles under the basket forever. But I think uh, another impact that he's had on the game is this move of putting defenders in jail. That's something that I definitely think Trey stole from Nash where when uh, you have these really good shooting guards and their defenders have to go over screens, they get the defender on their back and then kind of like seal them off to create that in-between space. Um, So yeah, Nash did that a ton. I, you know, I, I'm not like an expert in nineties or eighties basketball, so I don't know for sure if Nash was the first guy to do that, but I would guess that he might've been, and he definitely used it like a lot more than anybody I'd ever seen previous to that. And again, like every guard at every level now uses that move. So, you know, the, the, that team was just full of innovators and like not just Nash, not just D'Antoni, but a ton of different guys, you know, Sean mm-hmm. Marion was like way, way ahead of his time too. So it's, it's really interesting to look back on those seven seconds or less sons. Oh yeah. Sean Marion, um, Boris Diaw. I know that yeah. year before they People got forget him, about Dio. He yeah. was, he was like, uh, I think he was averaging like six or seven assists on those teams. Mm-hmm. He, and the thing is the year before they got him, he was on the Hawks and he was their backup point guard. He ends up starting at center for the Suns. They just, way ahead of like the positionless basketball thing. If you, um, if you, have you ever read, uh, Jack McCallum's book on the seven seconds or less sons? Uh, probably my favorite basketball book. Anytime anybody yeah. asks me for a basketball book, it's always the one that I recommend might be the best of all time. All right. So I'm going to test your memory here, but do you remember there's like, uh, there's one part of the book where like Dan Tony's like, uh, he's debunking all these, these myths about like the way people think about basketball, like how people think that the possessions later in the game somehow mean more than the possessions early in the game. You remember what I'm talking about? I don't remember that specific part now, mm. but it sounds right, well, D'Antoni. Yeah. So basically it's just like the idea is like why I'm bringing it up. It's just crazy to me that this guy, like, you know, he knew all these things that we're just like now figuring out about basketball. He knew these things like 15 years ago and Nash yeah. knew these things like 15 years ago. And they were both just, geniuses. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I can't believe they didn't win a championship because they were just so, so far ahead of the curve. Yeah. And it's really, it's really irritating because 
And I think a lot of the, these guys that get covered in this series, a lot of them have to deal with, uh, they, they wear the sins. So they, they suffer for like, I don't know, a team like the Warriors to be able to, you know, succeed because, you know, they had to take the beating of, it's like the, you know, black swan fallacy or whatever, you know, oh, you can't, Charles Barkley saying you can't, you can't win with a jump shooting team. And I mean, it's easy to say that because it's never happened, but that doesn't mean just because something's never happened that it can never happen. You know, yeah. and then of course we see now, you know, you can't win without a jump shooting team now. So it's, it's sad and they're like tragic heroes in a sense. But I think like nowadays the world is starting to move to a place where we're able to like appreciate them more and, you know, their legacy is a lot better. But I think, and this is to kind of summarize everything we've been talking about, the greatest, the greatest legacy of Nash. So when, when, as I've gone back and studied these revolutionary players, I've realized them being revolutionary kind of worked to their advantage in a lot of ways. Like I think if Nash was in today's game with his exact set of skills, I don't think he'd win the MVP. I don't think he'd be good enough. You you agree with that? I don't know. I mean, Curry's won an MVP. His game is very similar to Curry. Like mm-hmm. if you look back, Nash is one of the great what ifs if he had played mm-hmm. in today's game because he only averaged three three point attempts per game. Uh, that mm-hmm. would have been double digits today. Like I think Steph averaged 11 somewhere around there this season. And he was maybe a better shooter than Steph. Like he shot 49, 43, 90. Those were splits for his career. Steph's at 47, 43, 91. Now Steph takes totally insane shots. So we don't know if Nash can make, you know, like a 35 foot pull up double teamed. <laughs> But he was definitely the best shooter of his era. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just, like I said, it's one of the great what ifs. We we really don't know. But if he could reach that Curry level of shooting, which, I mean, Curry's the best shooter of all time. So that's pretty high bar to reach. I think he could have won an MVP in today's game. Sure. See, my thinking is like, I feel like it worked to his advantage just a little bit that he was zagging while everyone was zigging. And that just helped him impact the game have a greater impact on basketball games, like relative to that time. I, don't, I think I'd, I think he'd still be like a top 10 player in the league. Like, I think like what we think of Trey young now, he's probably better than that by like a, a pretty sizable mark, but I, I don't know if he'd be the MVP. So I think like that worked to his advantage, but I guess I'm rambling um, to get to this point where it's like, I think his biggest legacy is he gave a pathway to these undersized guards who were not like traditionally athletic to them becoming like the drivers of super like good offenses and just becoming like all-stars and all league type players. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, this style where, uh, th- this is like such a trademark of D'Antoni offenses where he just lets this one guy cook this one engine cook, even when he has a player that doesn't really fit that Nash mold, like a James Harden. Mm-hmm. Where you know Harden's taking up a lot of the clock, just isoing. That that wasn't really Nash's game. I would say like he was way more about ball movement, but it still works because um, you're just giving your. This is like a big Daryl Morey thing. Like he compares basketball and baseball, where basketball has such an unfair advantage if you have an elite player. It would be like in baseball if you let the same. If you got to choose, this is the analogy Morey makes: is you get to choose the pitcher. And you get to choose whatever batter on your team you want. And the guy gets to bat nine times in a row up and down the lineup. So that's like what uh, D'Antoni and Nash did 
uh, where, yeah, like you said, that's the influence on the rest of the league is you can have these really, really high usage stars that just dominate everything because they're better than your role players, right? Like mm-hmm. you want a James Harden uh, creating offense and a possession over like Eric Gordon, right? You don't, you don't want Eric Gordon to like uh, decide what shots take. So that's, I think that's really uh, the legacy that Nash and D'Antoni created out of the seven seconds or less sons. Yeah, no, that's, and that is true. Like, even though like traditional usage race stats, maybe don't, don't paint Nash as high usage as he should be. That's basically because they're not accounting for a couple of variables, but no, I, I agree with you. And I think the whole heliocentrism, heliocentrism debate is kind of like misunderstood. And that's probably a conversation for a different day, but yeah, hundred percent agree with you. I think it's like, it's a good formula. It's a smart formula. I mean, like you said, why, if you could have, if you could have like, I don't know that much about baseball. If you could have nine Miguel Cabrera's at the plate instead of like one Miguel Cabrera and like all his teammates, you know, wouldn't you want prime Miguel Cabrera, not today's Miguel Cabrera. I'm a Tigers fan. That's why I'm thinking about it. We could do the Mike analogy Trout. Rory makes is uh, Barry Bonds. He always says, like, okay. when you get Barry Bonds to bat, uh, you know, 40 times in a game, like, you would definitely want to do that. Yeah. And that, yeah, Barry Bonds would probably be, because Maury was probably talking about this stuff in like the mid 2000s. So, yeah, Bonds would, yeah. Bonds would make the most sense. Now, now we're just rambling. Well, I'm not going to hold you up too much longer. I know you, you got adulting things to do and work things to do, but I really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I always appreciate, you know, just being so helpful with everything. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Blazing the Trail. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way towards raising awareness for this series. Hey, I don't make the rules. The algorithm does. Also, be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications when new articles and podcast episodes come out from me and all of my other wonderful coworkers at Basketball News. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys next week for the Richard Lewis episode. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.